This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, marine biologist James McClintock discusses his memoir, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. Then, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino introduced the best books of 2015. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan, and not yet powered by our best books list, though I, I always keep an eye on it the week after our, our list comes out to see if there's a jump. Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. So we have a real, genuine phenomenon here on the bestseller list. Tell us about it, Mark. So this is, as we were discussing, this book tops all bestsellers. Uh, this week is on the top, and it's a cookbook. Amazing. Yes, and this is one that has <laughs> topped lists. I, I'm not too sure if it's gotten this high, though perhaps it has. Uh, the Pioneer Woman comes back. The Pioneer Woman cooks. This one is dinner time. Comfort classics, freezer food, 16-minute meals, and other delicious ways to solve supper. So this is a handy cookbook for those busy people who want don't have time to cook on the uh, weeknight. So they prepare ahead, freeze it. You can do it in, as she says here, 16 minutes. This is, of course, Reed Drummond. And what's pretty amazing is that first week out... 132,000 copies. Okay, so so for those of you who, you know, don't keep these numbers in your head, that is orders of magnitude yeah, more than, than the usual number one book uh, on the bestseller list in either fiction or nonfiction. And to right. give you some more perspective, the number one in fiction, hardcover fiction, is John Grisham. Obviously, multi-bestseller, yeah. you know, is everywhere, sells a ton. And that book sold 118,000 copies. So the Pioneer Woman right. beat out John Grisham. That is incredible. That's pretty wonderful. I, I mean, it, it really is. It's, uh, it's, it's quite something. And We've been, you know, I have to say, we've been seeing, I think, more and more cookbooks hit the overall bestseller list. Yeah, that's true. They've they've been showing up on our overall top ten quite a bit. And uh, the the one, the other cookbook that's in the top twenty is uh, Crazy Sexy Juice: a hundred plus simple juice, smoothie, and nut milk recipes to supercharge your health. By this is this is by Chris Carr, and uh, this is exactly what the uh, the book is. And this is at number twelve, so it's. Pretty high up there. Uh, That's number uh, 12 on our nonfiction list. On our nonfiction list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. On our nonfiction list. And then just going down a little bit, just moving away from cookbooks, we have Binge, Tyler Oakley at number four. Uh, this is uh, going to bio. We don't have a review of this. Pop cultural phenom, social rights advocate, and uh, the most prominent LGBTQ plus voice on YouTube. And this is his his uh, memoir right here. We've been seeing a lot of books from YouTube creators. Yeah, right, exactly. Showing up. That's interesting. Number 19, Baltimore Ravens linebacker Ray Lewis. Book, I Feel Like Going On, Life, Game, and Glory. 
a lot of people are uh, buying that. Um, and that's at number 19. Celeb, we have Travis Barker's, uh, they say, soul-bearing memoir. And this is the, the drummer for uh, Blink-182. And the title is, Can I Say? Living Large, Cheating Death, and Drums, Drums, Drums. Um, so, uh, nice, big, colorful, tattooed photo of him on the book jacket. And in keeping with the uh, with the music theme, I think I have another one over here. Uh, maybe not. That's it. That's it. I'm sorry. I wanted to mention one more uh, cookbook. That's Nopi. Uh, this is the one I forgot. This is at number 30, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Nopi cookbook, uh, which is north of Piccadilly uh, in London. And this is Yotam Adelenghi's book. Um, and he's always on the bestseller list, not as high as his previous two books, but here it is. Uh, and finally, the one I really wanted to mention is Sarah Vowell uh, at number 27, Lafayette in the somewhat United States. And this is a uh, her look through uh, the French in general through the uh, American Revolution. So uh, that's interesting. It's really uh, great. She's been on so many radio shows. It's it's really I mean, she's hilarious. She's really funny, mm-hmm. but she's got all her facts. And it's a really great uh, look into history. I mean, through humor. Now, what's going to be interesting to me is how many Hamilton fans are going to pick that up because oh. Lafayette is a significant person, of course, in the right. show Hamilton. Um, but it would be very interesting to read that book, um, right. picturing him as an African-American rapper, um, which is how he's played with you know, great fervor by David Diggs right. uh, in in the, the show Hamilton, which I'm right. totally obsessed with. I'm, yeah. I'm that person. Yeah. And so over here on the hardcover fiction list, um, we actually have uh, four new books in the mm-hmm. top 10. That's uh, you know, unusual. And as I said, at number one, one, Rogue Lawyer by John Grisham, um, sold 118,000 copies out of the gate. Uh, not a bad showing at all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we called it in our review an uninspired legal thriller, but um, honestly, lack of quality has never stopped anyone from buying a book by John Grisham. Yeah. He's, he's just got that something, yeah. that spark, that kick um, that makes you just want to keep turning the pages. He knows how to make it work. And uh, you know, the, the plot is not terribly... Relevant, as the title says, it's about a rogue lawyer. Uh, he isn't afraid to defend unpopular clients, and uh, you know we—he's t- more of a stereotype than a full-blooded character. And some later plot developments strain credibility. But mm. uh, you know, it's one of those things where kind of who cares? Yeah. Um, you're reading it because you want to be reading a John Grisham right. book, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, moving down the list at number three, Career of Evil by Robert Galbraith, who, of course, is J.K. Rowling under a pseudonym. Um, I really want to know how these books would have done had, you know, that that pseudonym not right. been revealed. But uh, we say this one's more of a thriller than a whodunit, and it further deepens her lead characters, Cormoran Strike and Robin Ellicott. Um, you know, on second thought, I don't know how anyone could look at the name Cormoran Strike and think it was created by anyone other than J.K. <laughs> Rowling. That sounds like someone who should be in the Harry Potter books, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Professor Cormoran Strike of, yeah. of Hogwarts. And uh, so we say that uh, Rowling maintains a high level of suspense throughout and sets the stage for further complexities in the relationship between Robin and Cormoran. So 
That's at number three. At number five, we have Welcome to Night Vale, the novel. Uh, this is obviously linked to the popular Welcome to Night Vale podcast. And we say that the co-creators of the show, Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner, successfully expand the mythology of their strange desert town. It's not typical to see uh, a podcast, you know, serial audio fiction, give rise to a novel. Uh, I, I don't recall yeah, that. I, I, right, happening exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's always a little bit of a challenge to turn this very episodic right. format um, into something that's one long story read straight through. Uh, but we say that uh, the book meanders in a bit, a bit in the middle, but the end is satisfying with a surprising origin story for one of the characters. And fans will find it refreshing to see Night Vale from different perspectives and meet characters who have only been mentioned before in passing. But knowledge of the podcast is not required to follow the story. So uh, we, we thought that this unusual experiment in format shifting worked surprisingly well. Yeah. So that's on our list at number five. Number seven, we have The Lake House by Kate Morton. We gave this a starred review. Uh, we say that she just excels in this mm. mystery set against the gothic backdrop of 1930s England, um, specifically in Cornwall, an, an isolated estate uh, where a wealthy family is preparing for a midsummer ball. First in the, in the 1930s, uh, a child is kidnapped, and then the story moves forward to 2003 London, uh, where a detective decides to dig into that 70-year-old missing persons case. Right. Uh, We say Morton's plotting is impeccable, and her finely wrought characters are brought together in the end by the investigation and and will be as surprised as readers by the astonishing conclusion. So. So, Cold Case in Cornwall. Yes, indeed. I see. That would be a great title. Yeah. (laughs) But instead we get The Lake House, which uh, just makes me think of the movie by the same title, which is a totally different story. Um, Moving down the list a little bit, at number 20 uh, is The Explorer's Guild, Volume 1, A Passage to Shambhala. Uh, This is mostly interesting because Kevin Costner's name is on it. He's not renowned as a novelist, but he uh, has decided, I guess, to take a break from movies and instead uh, turn to books we don't have a review of this one uh, obviously the uh, publisher is really playing it up as this super exciting golden age of adventure story um, the book design is certainly gorgeous mm-hmm. they put a lot of effort into that um, illustrations by Rick Ross who's very well regarded and um, you know it's the the packaging is impressive couldn't tell you much about what's inside it but uh, it's a, a sort of globe-trotting mm-hmm. adventure kind of thing um, in the perhaps in the Jules Verne around the world in 80 days oh, kind of right. style. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Um, it will, it'll be interesting to see how that does, but it hit the list at number 20. And uh, finally, I just wanted to jump down a little bit at number 30, A Strangeness in My Mind by Orhan Pamuk. Uh, is translated uh, fiction by the Nobel laureate. Uh, we gave it a starred review, called it mesmerizing. It's a sweeping epic chronicling Istanbul's metamorphosis between 1969 and mm. 2012. And in this case, there's an interesting perspective shift from what you might expect. It's seen through the eyes of rural Anatolian migrant workers who come to the increasingly teeming metropolis in search of new opportunities in love and commerce. So um, vivid, fascinating. And uh, we say that what really stands out is Pamuk's treatment of Istanbul's evolution into a noisy, corrupt and modernized city and uh, just a thoroughly immersive journey. Right. 
really interesting stuff there. Definitely worth checking out. Um, and another interesting bit of translated fiction just below it at number 32, Submission by Michel Ulbeck, uh, translated by Lawrence Stein. And uh, it was published in France, uh, coincidentally, the time it coincided with the attacks on the office of Charlie Hebdo. And uh, it, this particular book was uh, really accused of, of embodying Islamophobia. There was a lot of controversy about it. Um, and uh, we say that that might well color the reception of the English language translation, but that would be a travesty. The novel's moral complexity is concerned with how politics shape and annihilate personal ethics, and it's singular and brilliant. Mm. Uh, so this is uh, you know, really detailed review. I'm not going to quote the whole thing because we, we go in depth. Uh, but we say this novel is not a paranoid political fantasy. It merely contains one, which I think is a really important distinction yeah. Yeah. for a worth of, work of fiction. Uh, Ulbeck's argument becomes an investigation of the content of ideology, and he has written an indispensable serious book that returns a long-eroded sense of consequence, immediacy, and force to contemporary literature. So our reviewer was clearly passionate about this book uh, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how the conversation happens around it Great. As, yeah, uh, yeah, right. as as the translation makes its way into the market so that's what we've got for this week's best and it's amazing list. that it's on the bestseller list too yeah yeah I'm, I'm not actually surprised because the controversy will breed sales yeah. um, and you know it's down at number 32 it sold 2700 copies which is respectable yeah. for work of translated fiction um, so uh Maybe you know it'll get picked up by some talk show host who's for or against, and that'll drive a lot of sales. Or maybe not. We'll find out. That's it for the bestseller list uh, in fiction. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, James McClintock tells us how he combines work and play on the world's waterways. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adrian Tomina, the creator of Killing and Dying, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got marine biologist James McClintock on the line. His new book is A Naturalist Goes Fishing, Casting in Fragile Waters from the Gulf of Mexico to New Zealand's South Island. James, I'm so glad you could join us. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about this book. Why did you decide to combine writing about ecology with tales from your lifetime of recreational fishing? Well, um, as a scientist who's worked for 30 years conducting research, particularly in remote locations like Antarctica, um, one of my goals now is to take what I've learned in ecology um, and educate the general public about those topics and particularly timely environmental issues. And it turns out that uh, a dear old love of mine, English, which I actually started out majoring in back in college many years ago before I discovered marine biology, um, sort of circled around in my life, and I decided that I would go back to that interest and uh, write for the general public, combining stories of my life as a scientist, or in this case, my fishing adventures uh, around the world with um, nature, natural history, and environmental conservation. So, so tell us a little bit about your, your fishing adventures. Yeah, um, my fishing adventures come to me um, primarily fortuitously. 
Um, I'm not somebody who's of enough wealth to fly around the world for purposes of fishing, Mm -hmm. but I do a lot of teaching where I take students abroad uh, to teach in the Bahamas and Galapagos and Costa Rica. Um, I take my research trips to Antarctica, funded by the National Science Foundation, and sabbaticals in places far like France and New Zealand. And when these things happen, I I love to fish. And so uh, over the years, I've garnered together a fair number of fishing adventures. And that's what you read about in the book is, you know, that day that I caught the big yellowfin tuna off the Gulf of Mexico or my trips out to the Chandler Islands for spotted uh, trout and redfish. Um, and that's that's really how these stories came about was sort of my opportunities to fish when I'm on location for other purposes. Uh, it sounds great. I, and now I just have to ask, it sounds like you do a lot of uh, cast fishing. Do you also do uh, uh, fly rod or is it mostly cast? Absolutely. Um, I do a lot of cast fishing, and I've done a fair amount of fly fishing as well. Great. Um, I do talk about fly fishing in the book, particularly when I was living uh, in New Zealand. Mm. So you teach at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and and carried out uh, marine biology research. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that, and then then we'll talk a little bit how you put it together in the book. Yeah, um, my career here has spanned a period of about 30 years now, and my area of expertise is really in polar marine biology, and in particular Antarctica, which, uh, as you know, is way south, the true south, not the Alabama south. And I've been working down there looking at uh, animals that produce toxic chemicals and how they use them to protect themselves and whether they can be developed into drugs to fight human disease like cancer and AIDS and cystic fibrosis and different things. And in the last 15 years, my program in Antarctica has moved to the Antarctic Peninsula where climate change is very dramatic. And this is something that has really captured my attention. And uh, I've been focusing on that to a great extent in my research here at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Um, And so that's sort of what I'm doing here at UAB. I'm also a professor that teaches courses um, as well as direct a number of graduate students. So how um, how did you decide to, I guess, start fishing while you were traveling around teaching? I mean, is it just the sort of thing where, you know, there you were looking out over the, the Gulf of Mexico or in the Bahamas thinking, you know, what I really want is a fishing rod in my hand right now? Right. Well, I team teach the course with Ken Marion, who is a dear friend and my fishing buddy. And so that really had a lot to do with it. We would go someplace and say, you know, we've really got to figure out how to catch a fish here in the Bahamas. We don't really have the resources or the time to do serious bone fishing where we rent a guide and we go out for the day with our fly rods. But let's try throwing a hot dog into the bay here and see what happens. (laughs) And lo and behold, we catch a bone fish right as a yacht is pulling in with a guy who gets off, uh, who's been bone fishing all day, very frustrated, having not caught a bonefish, and finding us reeling in, you know, this nice five-pound bonefish and asking us, what you catch it on? And we told him a hot dog, and there was just sort of stunned silence. <laughs> and he walked away very disgusted. And So we take, you know, advantage of where we are to do these things. Um, one time we were in Costa Rica teaching tropical uh, rainforest ecology there, and we're staying at the Atlantic Coast at a lodge with our students. And we had no idea that one of the world expert tarpon guides happened to use our lodge as his base. 
And lo and behold, he didn't have any famous movie stars booked that day. And he took us out for a half a day. And, you know, we both caught 135-pound tarpon wow. to get them up to the boat and get a picture. You know, it was this kind of sort of opportunistic fishing that uh, that really gave provided the narrative for the book. So um, with the book, is this sort of the, the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down? Is you, you sort of get people in with the idea of, of fun fishing stories, and then you hit them with the ecological realities? Um, this is... I, I approach my uh, writing in terms of the environment with a glass half full. Um, and so I do discuss the environmental issues that are, are pressing on our fisheries, um, as well as things like climate change and ocean acidification. Uh, but I also offer in the book um, hope um, for the future. I give examples of sustainable fisheries. I talk about the kinds of uh, things that are happening, the, sort of this mindset change you're seeing now. I think in a generation we've seen uh, people that fish go from sort of the trophy or into the you know kettle sort of approach to fishing everything must be eaten or or essentially put on the wall versus you know this catch and release ethic that has grown fairly strong now and uh, is found with many different types of sport fish so I, I you know it isn't really a gloom and doom kind of approach to um, the environment and how it's affecting fisheries it's more um, let's face the reality but let's also see what we can do and what's being done so you 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 took a fishing trip uh, to the Chandelure Islands. I think I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Which is uh, a chain of islands uninhabited for about yeah, I guess it's about 30 miles off the Louisiana coast. That's correct. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit what was the fishing like there, but also ecologically, what what did you discover? Well, this is an absolutely spectacular. Um, wildlife refuge. You actually get there from Biloxi, Mississippi, but you're correct. They're located within the state of Louisiana, about 30 miles offshore. They're very um, low-lying islands, covered in salt marshes. Uh, There's seagrass beds that surround them. And we have this tradition now for many years of, we call them the chandelier dozen. Uh, We go out on a large boat um, that we live on, and then there's small skiffs that are launched for fishing. So we fish in pairs, and we're fishing for speckled trout and redfish uh, amidst these absolutely gorgeous islands. The wildlife is spectacular with uh, frigate birds circling overhead, and one of the islands has so many brown pelicans on it, you know, they almost push each other into the water. Um, And all this is made all the more astounding because as an ecologist, I know that things like brown pelicans were threatened not Mm -hmm. that many years ago um, when we had the DDT issues going on, etc. So what I bring to bear about the chandeliers is they're very ephemeral, and they're very sensitive to change. They're very sensitive to to, uh, sea level rise, for example. Um, And then also um, the the Hurricane Katrina scenario, where the islands were literally decimated by Hurricane Katrina. Some of the islands disappeared Hmm. uh, from the map, and one of the largest islands was cut several places. Some of them lost 30, 40, 50 percent of their mass. So I've seen this change over the years and how uh, vulnerable they are and yet how important they are because they protect the coastline of Louisiana, which is so susceptible, as we all know, uh, to hurricanes. And they're not being 
replenished like they used to be when the Mississippi River brought sediments down and these sediments found their way out to, to rebuild these islands. So it's, it's in that sort of uh, scenario that we find ourselves fishing. That's fascinating. And um, we also mentioned that uh, you, as you mentioned, uh, you were fishing for yellowfin tuna in the Gulf of Mexico, but mm-hmm. you were also um, looking at the, the results of the Deepwater Horizon blowout. Yeah, that turned out to be very interesting because um, we were invited to go yellowfin uh, tuna fishing. I'd never done this before, and uh, just catching the fish was amazing because they use a method called chunking, where you take chunks of uh, fish and you drop them in the water by hand, and you sit there and watch the tuna come up from the deep, uh, and then you hide the hook in one of the chunks, and a tuna will take it, and, and you can catch blackfin and yellowfin tuna. The, the bluefin tuna, of course, are endangered and protected, right. but the yellowfins and the blackfins are very, very abundant, um, and it was a fantastic experience. Um, un, unbeknownst to my, myself, just a few months after this tuna fishing trip, in the same area where we were catching our tuna uh, is where the Deep Horizon rig uh, exploded on April 20th, 2010. And so that provided a very nice uh, segue for me to talk about how that oil spill was thought to have influenced uh, the possible uh, tuna larvae themselves, the young fish, uh, and then that oil worked into the Chandelier Islands, and that was one of the first impact zones. And so we were able to evaluate how that fishery and how those coastal animals that were impacted uh, are doing. And, and the good news is that it looks like um, they're doing pretty well. We still don't know a lot about what happened to all the oil that went deep, um, but we know that at least among the marsh systems, there was some of effect in the chandeliers for about a year, and that has recovered fairly well, and it's thought that the tuna are doing as, uh, fairly well as well. So, good news in the end. And thus your glass half full uh, look at it, so so a little bit of optimism there. A little bit of optimism there. <laughs> yeah, it's different than uh, what happened up in Alaska, I think, in the sense that the water's warmer. I think there's more microbial breakdown of the oil. Right. The oil is a very uh, high-quality oil. In other words, it tends to vaporize to a large extent. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some problems. We're still getting tarballs coming up on the beaches of Alabama and Florida and Louisiana and Mississippi. Right. And those are coming from somewhere. I, I was going to say, you sound like the the most cheerful climate change discusser I have ever <laughs> heard. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. It's all cheer. Uh, having been working in Antarctica where I've seen entire communities change, uh, penguin populations crash, glaciers recede. Um, it's it's quite stunning. And it, I, I feel it's a responsibility that I, I really bear to make people aware that this is really happening and happening over periods of decades instead of millennia. And that, you know, while we certainly care about Antarctic ecosystems and the potential they bear for carrying disease, um, it's more of a canary in the the coal mine. Um, what, what I'm seeing happen there is going to manifest itself, and in, in some ways already is, uh, in the more temperate and tropical regions of our planet. So I'm, I do a lot of lecturing on climate change to uh, various groups around the country. I will admit, the, 10 years ago, I spoke primarily to Audubon and Sierra Club and environmental groups, um, but I'm speaking broadly now to rotary groups um, who tend to be leaders of communities, fairly conservative, and it's 
promising to me that people now are listening, they're realizing their economic impacts, they're realizing that there are ways to move ahead with this and deal with it, uh, and maybe not you know, have as much of a negative impact on society as it's being made out to be. How do you find those speaking gigs? Do they come and find you? Uh, yes. Um, typically, uh, I'll get contacted by a university uh, or a, a civic group or something, and they'll say, you know, we read your book, Lost Antarctica. Uh, we would love for you to come speak about your book. Uh, we'll, we'll have a big general public lecture. I just got back from the University of Texas at San Antonio, and they had 250 people. There weren't even enough seats in the auditorium that wow. came to the evening lecture to hear me speak. And that's followed by a book signing. And then they'll be they'll bring in their uh, the donors of the campus to meet me and have a drink and, and you know so it's it's really neat. And then I do roundtable discussions with the students while I'm on campus and meet the faculty. And um, I'm off to. Uh, I'm going up to Boston shortly uh, to, to one of the colleges up there uh, to do this as well. And so it's, I, I think I probably give somewhere around 20 to 30 public lectures a year now uh, on my work in Antarctica, climate change, and now my book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. And I'm delighted that my first real literary event is on my calendar. I've been invited to be a speaker at the Sun Valley Idaho Writers Conference next summer. Nice. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, so it's, it's interesting as a scientist to enter this world of, of this sort of literary world. And I, I have to give credit to a professor I work with here at UAB who's a professor of English who's worked very closely with me, sort of my first line editor with these two books. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with James McClintock, the author of A Naturalist Goes Fishing. He's just talking about uh, being a scientist in the literary world. Let's go back to that English major that you mentioned. How did all of that early training, you know, some, some decades ago, kind of influence the writing of this book? Well, uh, it's certainly, I've always enjoyed writing, even as a, you know, a high school student. I think my best, my favorite teacher in high school was uh, a literature teacher, advanced literature. I'll never forget um, that this is somebody I really looked up to and always thought how neat it would be to write someday. Um, so I had a little bit of a base in English uh, going in, but, you know, after doing an undergraduate degree in biology and a master's in zoology and a Ph.D. in biology and it, it was it was too big of a step um, when my good friend E.O. Wilson nudged me and said, you know, you really should write for the general public. There's there's so few scientists who are doing this now, and perhaps we're we've never been into time where it's more important mm -hmm. that scientists reach out. And I I thought to myself, you know, I really want to do this, and so I found this English professor Adam Vines on campus, and he he likes to fish. How's that? And also he's a wonderful editor and a poet, 
and he agreed to work with me. So we've sort of formed this interdisciplinary team. We're now being invited around the country to speak, the two of us, about a scientist and somebody in the, in the humanities working together to create um, these books that I'm writing. So that's been very exciting. You know, I was a medical journalist some years ago and mm-hmm. uh, looked into medical writing programs and was actually a little surprised that they were all about teaching writing to doctors rather than teaching medicine or at least sort of medical overview to, to writers. Um, mm-hmm. Because I just mm-hmm. didn't know that there were that many doctors and scientists who were interested in writing. So right. it's great that you, that you found this. I, I know. I just love it. And what I found about books is that they're a little bit like children. You know, you, you work very hard and they come into the world and then they really sort of take on a life of their own. Um, like when I published my first book, Lost Antarctica, I had no idea that the director of E.O. Wilson's foundation, E.O. Wilson is a famous Harvard evolutionary biologist, would call me up and say, uh, we want to make a video, or I'm sorry, yeah, a little short video that's going into zoos and aquariums. And we want to use the prose from your book, literally. And uh, I said, well, I'd be honored to read this uh, for this video, and she said, or, and narrated, and she said, no, 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 we'll have Her- Harrison do it. And I said, who's Harrison? She said, well, Harrison Ford. You know, he's on this advisory board with you now. And I said, you're kidding. Um, you know, I met Bill Gates in Antarctica and spent a day with him, and he's uh, stayed in touch. He wrote a wonderful book jacket blurb for me on my first book. Um, Robert Redford has written a nice book jacket blurb uh, on this book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. So these people that you meet, um, these boards that you're elected to, they all open doors. And so I've found, as a scientist, that's really rewarding to um, be able to amplify my voice to the general public public through these kinds of connections. Well, let's talk a little bit about that book you just mentioned, Lost Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that book come about, and um, what was your research like for that? Well, um, that was uh, the first book I ever wrote, and I thought to myself, what do I have up my sleeve that I could write a book about? Um, first of all, I needed to find a, a literary agent. Well, there's a catch-22. How does a scientist find a literary agent? Well, that was fortunate with uh, my connections with, again, with E.O. Wilson. He was able to facilitate that. And once I had a literary agent, um, you know, the the idea was, uh, what, do, what are you sitting on? What, what sort of conceptual thing could you do for a book that you may not realize you have in your head right now, but you do? And I thought to myself, well, you know, 30 years of adventures of going to and working in Antarctica is a book. Um, and I was able to construct it in a series of chapters that uh, addressed different environmental issues that are important in Antarctica, built around climate change and ocean acidification, and kind of related back to the different environments. There's there's a chapter on the tiny things that live in the plankton. Um, there's a chapter on the Adelie penguin, which is disappearing. As, this is one of the most poignant stories of impacts of climate change, is that the Adelie penguins near Palmer Station, where I work on the Antarctic Peninsula, have gone from 15,000 breeding pairs down to 1,500 
breeding mm. pairs wow. just in the past 30 years. And the, what's happening is they're being covered with very unseasonably late snowfall and the, the eggs are drowning. The sea ice is receding and the krill that uh, feed the penguins uh, that use the sea ice, the underside as a, a place to feed, are, are disappearing. Um, so you're seeing all these cascading effects going on. And I thought, goodness, there's certainly a, a book in this. But again, um, my approach is there's a lot of storytelling in my book about adventures, the time that we were chased around under the water by a leopard seal, um, what it's like to live. One of my favorite parts is sort of the communication world. When I, you know, my first trip to Antarctica, I had to send a Western Union telegram to my fiance. And as a graduate student, it was $4 a word. So she only got five words over three months. <laughs> and, you know, by the time... I think this last season when I went down, I was handed a cell phone, and I could climb up on the glacier behind the, the U.S. station and look out over this spectacular landscape where the Andes that go underneath the Drake Passage and reemerge and form the spine of the Antarctic Peninsula were my backdrop, and sit there and talk to my wife like she's sitting next to me. Wow. Um, and all that you know, technology that's happened over that, those three decades to make that possible, and how it's affected the life of Antarctica researchers who leave their families and, and live in isolation for months at a time to have those different kinds of communications available. So there's a lot that goes into the book about adventure, living in Antarctica, and then, of course, the narrative of the environmental change and climate. There was a recent New York Times uh, front page article just a couple of weeks ago that discussed the, uh, the melting of, of Greenland. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know if you saw that. What are your thoughts on that in, in, in relation to your Antarctic uh, experience? It's funny that you bring that up because that article really took me uh, to another level. And I say that, for, again, sort of from a technological standpoint. I was I was at home with my coffee and paper in the morning, and I always have my iPad sitting there, and I picked it up. And I opened up the New York Times on the iPad and found that exact article that you're talking about. So I went to it, and as you as you scrolled down, it was very interesting. They, they suddenly you were almost like Google Earth. You were you were yeah. hovering over Greenland. Yeah. And did right. you get this too? I and, did. And as at first, I was a little confused about what I was supposed to do next. But I realized that as I scrolled down across the screen, what I was doing is I was working my way down to the surface of Greenland to one of these uh, rivers that has emerged that forms on the surface of Greenland on top of this, you know, the ice is hundreds and hundreds of feet thick. And these rivers then cascade down through these large holes, these chasms, um, and they took you right down to the river and over to the edge to look down into one of these holes, and you almost got vertigo, and I was just thinking, what an incredible experience to work that imagery and that sense right. of you know, vision into the prose itself. Um, but anyway, the article itself is, is very compelling, of course, because what scientists have discovered about Greenland and the western part of Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula is these ice sheets are melting uh, faster than they realized they would. Not only that, but the undersides of glaciers um, are melting. In Antarctica, we have the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, the largest current on our planet. And it circles the continent clockwise, and it's warming. 
quite rapidly. And so what's happening is the, the ice sheets that are bound to the land, these are about 100 feet thick, um, are melting on the undersides. And the glaciers that, that sort of spit out into the ocean are melting. And once the glaciers are gone and these ice sheets are gone, those are barriers that no longer exist. And that two miles of ice that sits on top of Antarctica is flowing towards the sea. And you think of that as sort of like a river cascading very, very slowly. But when these barriers are gone, the rate of flow is accelerated three or four times. And what this means is that the projections of sea level rise for us are now much greater than before they realized or factored in Greenland and the Western Antarctic. So we're looking, I think now the estimates are somewhere about a half a meter to a meter of sea level rise by century's end, which uh, if you live in Miami Beach is significant. Well, wow. I mean, I I live in Brooklyn, but uh, even in the, the, I guess, 10 years that I've been back in New York uh, since I came from California, which has its whole own set of environmental disasters going on, I just make a policy of only living in neighborhoods with heights in the name um, uh -huh. because, you know, I don't want to be flooded out by a hurricane. And it just seems, you know, I, I look at, at Coney Island or Brighton Beach or whatever, and I think this isn't going to be here. Exactly. <laughs> it, well, it's really alarming. Here. That's wonderful. Uh, and the fact that you just said that to me is so stunning that you're, you know, you're, you're factoring in these things already in your decisions about where you live. Um, and I do get that now. And, you know, like I said, now I'm speaking regularly at Rotary meetings, and I'll have people come up and say I'm worried about my beach house. Well, you uh, should be. You know, and maybe I need to think about this because I'm having trouble getting insurance on my mm. beach house. Um, some people who have coastal property now are just choosing to take a chance and not have insurance. Um, so it's, yeah, it's changing very quickly. So so these books that I'm writing are, are my way of trying to get the word out very broadly from the perspective of an objective person who's rooted in science um, and has seen these things with their own eyes and uh, and command, or not command, but hopefully garner the confidence and respect that goes along with um, really taking the words to heart. Uh, one of the things I'm doing here in Alabama now is... Uh, you know, we have a very large conservative religious base here. And if you really look at, you know, some of the things that are that are dear to the hearts of of these fundamental religious types of people is, you know, this whole concept of stewardship. And, you know, there's not that big a, a difference between thinking of stewardship of our planet from the perspective of an environmental biologist or from the perspective of somebody who holds this as a... As a sort of a component of their faith. And so I'm holding a workshop um, next month called Spirituality and Climate Change, A Weekend in the Forest, um, to talk. I'll be directing it along with the, uh, the minister of an Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. And so this is an area that I think has a lot of potential. Um, the, the, you know, the, the numbers of people that are out there that could help work to solve some of these issues of climate change um, would be huge if you could uh, engender that type of uh, 
of concern and dedication. Well, you know, I was actually going to ask that as you were you. Well, I I was how the conversation is 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 changing, especially as you as you've said you've spoken with Rotary groups or other maybe more conservative groups, and now mm-hmm. you're talking about churches and and how you're weaving that into a, a, a conversation that that kind of jives with with uh, the the institutions thinking. I mean, are are you finding that? People are uh, just, just say, for instance, the 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 idea of human involvement in global climate change versus something that is just happening that happens evolutionarily. I mean, it, yeah, I know, I know what you're getting at, Mark. It's uh, it's interesting. I used to get asked, is is the planet really warming? You know, there was some speculation that maybe that was, you know, that the data was weak or wasn't even true. Or um, I have not been asked about warming in front of very conservative audiences uh, for probably five years. Mm. So now it seems that most people are pretty convinced that the Earth is warming. The question now is, do we have anything to do with it? Mm -hmm. Or is this some sort of a natural cycle? And so to explain that to my audiences, um, I sort of loosen them up with some humor. I say you can go online and uh, you can look up you know, all sorts of strong evidence for global warming. And I show them a picture. is a wonderful um, YouTube picture uh, online somewhere that uh, shows a, cl- a clothesline with women's undergarments. And it's dated from the mid-1800s up to the present. And they get smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> and I say, see, this is what convinced me. And everybody just thinks that is a they just start laughing, and it doesn't matter what kind of the what their feeling is about global warming. It's a wonderful moment. And then uh, I say, well, okay, let's get serious. Let me show you what convinced me that we have something to do with it. And it's a wonderful segue because I'm talking about Antarctica typically at these talks, and suddenly we're looking at data from an ice core that goes down, you know, 10,000 meters through the Antarctic uh, plateau's ice. And in that ice core are little air bubbles that have a history of our atmosphere that goes back half a million years. And if you look at the carbon dioxide levels, that greenhouse gas in those little air bubbles, you can see that it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that those levels of carbon dioxide, that greenhouse gas, got higher and higher and higher and higher, 25% higher than they've ever been over the last half a million years. And now that's been extended back to a million. And I said, this to me, folks, really made me realize that, you know, we're putting more and more of this greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Everybody knows that carbon dioxide is a potent greenhouse gas. And so I think we have a significant effect on what we're seeing happening. We're contributing to this. And I get very little um, rebuttal to that. People seem to go, oh, that kind of makes sense. Okay. And then people say, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, maybe that'll be the topic of your next book. Maybe. We've been talking with James McClintock, and you can find his book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing, in stores right now. James, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino talks about the year's best books. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. I'm Ron Stadgill, the author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Reviews Director Luisa Hermelino is here to tell us all about PW's annual Best Books issue. Hello, Luisa. Hello. Hi. Well, so I guess this is um, the third time that we're now having you on the radio to talk about Best Books, how the time flies. Yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about Best Books 2015, which we are launching today. It's very exciting. Well, once again, yes, it's the most exciting issue of the year, almost especially for the reviews department. We look at 9,000 books, and we pick 100 in fiction, 50 in children's, and of course the most exciting piece is the top 10, which is divided between fiction and nonfiction. There's always a chance for another genre to slip in. We've often had comics. We've We've had had different... I think we've had a cookbook once, but I'm not too sure. It might have been years and years ago, yeah. So that's why it's it's a... big um, adventure to find 10 out of all these terrific books. And it's appearing in our November 2nd issue, and our cover is Maggie Nelson. Oh, so tell us a little bit about her book. Uh, Well, Well, that's the one I I covered, so The Argonauts, and uh, I I remember, I mean, we gave it a star. She's been getting a lot of of credit, I mean, a lot of coverage, or she had when when it came out by Great Wolf, uh, got a couple of awards, and uh, this is about um, her looks on marriage uh, and raising children. Uh, with her, um, her partner's name is uh, Harry, and uh, it, it's it's a it's a pretty wonderful book, um, talking about various transgender issues as well. Yeah, we called it um, mind blowing gender bending memoir. Yeah, uh, so it's really exciting, and she really writes an intelligent, interesting, kind of fabulous book. It really we didn't even have any question about doing her as the cover. And and it was interesting putting this together. It seemed like sometimes we have uh, a lot of debate uh, amongst us about who gets on the top ten. And this was this was actually everyone seemed to be very agreeable this time around. All the all of us editors. Yeah, this was a good year, and yeah. the cover always seems to just appear. Yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. we have two uh, Man Booker finalists who are last two years. Right. So it's all very exciting. Yeah. But the other thing we pride ourselves on, and we're doing it again this year, is we have three ten- translations on the top ten. Oh, wow. We have The Story of the Lost Child, the final piece in the Elena Ferrante Neapolitan novels. We have Imperium by Christian Kracht, translated from the German. It's from um, FSG, and it's a very bizarre story about a, a real guy who in 1902 left Germany to found a cult based on the coconut. (laughs) He went to the South Pacific. And um, you can imagine the terrible things that happened to him, least of all losing a lot of weight. And also we have Beauty is a Wound, which is by Eka Koronawan, and it's translated from the Indonesian. We've been seeing some interesting stuff coming out of Asia, but not much from Indonesia, so this is a big deal, and um, really opens up Indonesian history, which might not be so commonly known. So it's a a really wide-ranging list in both fiction and nonfiction. Yes, we're very proud of that. We always have a very eclectic list. We don't have the usual suspects sometimes. And what about on the nonfiction? Nonfiction, we have the Argonauts, We have Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan, 
which is a great memoir by the longtime New Yorker staff writer. And we have some serious stuff, Black Earth, The Holocaust is History and Warning, and The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World. He's a Prussian-born naturalist who kind of disappeared from the canon, but we're bringing him back with this book, we hope. Great. <laughs> Great. And uh, Tanahasi Coates' book is also on there, his letter to his son. Yes. So that's not a very eclectic choice. He's been all over the He's place. He's been everywhere. Yeah. But it's also yeah. one of those choices that you just can't get away from. No, yeah. you can't. You can't not pay attention to it. It's too amazing. And I think he's going to be racking up the prizes this year. That seems very likely. And how about on the fiction side? We have Delicious Foods, James Hanahan, Little Brown, which is about a mother and son and crack. And it's very exciting. And it's also very American. So we have these translations. And then I feel like we have these really American stories, you know, the, the surfer and and the crack addict, and we have Thomas McGuane with Crow Fair, set in Montana. That's pretty American. So um, it's a great list, as usual. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the process of putting the list together. You said there wasn't a lot of argument this year, but there must still have been some discussion. Well, every editor has their own category, so they have the books that they like in their category. But then it has to come down to the point where not every category is represented, not in the top 10. So that's where the discussion comes around. And it's it's hard to get it down to 10. It we, really is. Yeah. yeah. We often get to the point where it's two out of three. I think that happened with the nonfiction. Right. right. And we went back and forth and back and forth. But we get to have lunch. And that that helps. <laughs> Unlike our usual bread and water <laughs> rations. <laughs> and someone said, let's just bring sandwiches in. And I thought, oh, I don't think so. I think we should get out of the conference room for this. So how about on the uh, on the extended list? Did anything jump out at you in, in fiction particularly? I know that's more your, um, your area. There's the Hanya Yanagahara, mm-hmm. who she's... Um, a brief life. Mm-hmm. She won the Kirkus Award, and she's well, she's a finalist for the National Book Award, right. which I kind of think she might win. And uh, she was long, she was shortlisted for the Man Booker, mm-hmm. so she's got that really serious, long New York book. And it's unusual for a woman to get away with a nine hundred page book, so we're really right. rooting for her. What else jumps off? Um, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. You did. You did put me on the spot because I didn't bring that list with me. Well, how about you, Mark, on, on the on the cookbook side or on the memoir side? Anything that um, really yeah, grabbed I, you? You know, on, I, I think uh, cookbooks, one that has been getting a lot of attention, uh, Michael Solomon of Zahav, uh, in particular, he's an uh, Israeli-born uh, chef who has a restaurant uh, uh in Philadelphia where he is uh, it's all about uh, uh, bringing back Israeli cooking uh, food to modern you know kind of American taste but not even that it's about real Israeli cooking and it's all centered around hummus Um, Hmm. so or tahini and uh, it's really uh, uh, really a wonderful book and that was one of our top cookbooks um we we have a few stand up I mean it was really uh, what I enjoy about nonfiction is is you know there's four of us editors who are 
all choosing each different categories and, and the discussions that we have at exactly what Louisa said was, you know, we each have our categories, but as we're discussing them, we think, well, maybe this wasn't, when you look at the bigger picture, this wasn't as standout as I thought. Or you say, wow, that's kind of cool. A book on tap dancing. I never thought can go side by side a book on, as we mentioned, the Holocaust, you know, something serious or, or a real serious science uh, book that mm-hmm. is talking about um, uh, uh, global warming or, or whatever, anything. So, uh, yeah, it was really it was um, it's always a great time to come together and just to see what books stood out for us. And I know uh, Louisa has us all keep our starred uh, uh, reviews on, on a shelf, starred books on a shelf that we can access later on, especially as we're making these decisions. And to see how they hold up over the course of time. To, to look back, it kind of forces you to look back and it's, it's good to, like the books that were published in January where we reviewed, uh, you know, we ran reviews three months before. So right. we're talking well over a year that we handled the book. And just to say, are we, let's revisit this. It's like, wow, this really stood the test of time. I remember this rather than just focusing on books that have just come out in October and also gives a chance to look at books that are coming out in December and to say, you know what, these books haven't come out yet, but I'm going to get behind it anyway, just because, you know, we think it's good. Sometimes it goes, the, it's interesting the other way, we'll do an author profile and we'll say his masterpiece or his classic. And then if we actually go back, the review is, uh, you know, <laughs> right. but it's built up over the time yeah. and it survived which is amazing yeah. in this day of you know what's next yeah right right and and what about what about your categories well in fiction it's a little different we all really do our own thing uh, especially with with genre fiction i think i'm the only person in the office at this point who even reads the stuff so you know i'm not going around and getting suggestions from other folks for my for my genres but absolutely the standout book for me this year was naomi novik's uprooted there's mm-hmm. just no question we had her on the radio um, yeah. back in may when the book came out and uh it it's just it's just a knockout so uh, I was actually uh, pushing that a little bit for the top 10, and I'm sorry it didn't make the cut. Cause Got I think close. It, I know it did, Got but I, I think it deserves a really wide audience. I think just dismissing it as a fantasy novel would be uh, a little bit of a mistake. I think it's really, there's something in there for a lot of different people. Uh, and while I'm giving shout outs to uh, former PW radio guests who have also been on the best books this year, Ursula Vernon with Harriet the Invincible and Daniel Jose Older with Shadow Shaper. Mm. Those are on our middle grade and Great. YA best books, that's right. list, that's right. respectively. Um, so uh, that's, that's very exciting to see books that we've sort of singled out over the course of the year, as you said, really standing the test of time and um, and and getting their due. And uh, on the romance side, I was mostly surprised that I had, uh, I think, no paranormal romance that really stood out for me this year. There's so many subgenres of romance, yeah. so many. And you know, just saying, I have six books for all of romance and erotica is. Uh, Wow, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's really hard. Yes. It's really hard, uh, but uh, I'm I'm very pleased with the selections I made. But it's you know how do I uh, how do I put together a list that has the best inspirational historical romance and also the best kinky gay erotic romance you know and i do actually have one of each of those on on the list and i'm really happy with both those picks i thought both those books were just phenomenal so what i like is exciting. that you um 
go back and forth. Should we put this? Should we put this? We can't do all these. We have to put this. And finally, when you get the list, it seems so obvious that this right, was the best course. choice. Right. But it's so hard. It's so hard. And, um, you know, just the number of starred review books that we have to go through um, mm-hmm. is is a lot. I mean, you know, oh, whoa, poor me. I have to read all these wonderful books. And every year I'm like, why am I complaining about this? Because right. it's such a pleasure to really just sit down and read, which is not a thing we get a lot of time to do because the reviews are written by freelancers. We don't right. get to just sit and read very much. Yeah. So that's, I, it's, I, I feel like I'm getting away with something that I'm just, I literally sit on my bed surrounded by piles of wonderful books and go through them like, you know, the hungry caterpillar. But um, at the same time, evaluating them against one another. It's very another hard. Story. It's yeah. another story. Yeah. Yeah. That's very hard, but um, it's a fun challenge. And every year I'm glad we do it. And every year I'm glad we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's exciting. I can't wait to see the actual print magazine when does it go up online uh i think it goes up today so it's friday and uh you know the the news will be spreading as we always have a friday preview of our monday issue and then out in print on monday so exciting times yeah i'm excited to see um i always am to see the reaction to the list Right. It'll, it'll and be especially the cover. It'll be good to hear the buzz. I love watching authors. I just park myself on Twitter and I watch uh-huh. authors find out that they're on the best oh, list and like jump up and down and scream. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, this is great. This is great. This is this is the best thing. You know, it's it's a celebration. Uh, we we review books that are good. We review books that are bad. But this is our chance to really say these are wonderful. We love them. We love them. We're enthusiastic about them. You should read them. Everyone should read them. They're fantastic. And to see people come together and celebrate them together uh, is just very exhilarating. And we have such an advantage because we review so many books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, 9,000. 9,000 yeah. books. That's astonishing. Yeah. That's um, and, you know, can match prop, our props yeah. to our freelancers yes. for, for making this all happen. I know that when uh, my freelancers send me recommendations at the end of the year, they're always so thoughtful about which books were their particular favorites. And that definitely is influential for me. No, it's a dead lot of takes it takes more than a village for yeah. this place yeah <laughs> it's a nine nine thousand yeah. books that's amazing. Um, hundreds yeah. of freelancers it's a it's at the very least it's a small town yeah, yeah. <laughs> well louisa thank you so much it's always great to have you on the show thank and you. uh you know we'll have you back uh, at the very least in a year that would be great i hope i'm here <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thank and, you and now thank a final you. word from our sponsors Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another deep dive interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 